Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the TLS podcast. With the summer holidays upon us, now seems a good time to take stock and revisit some memorable moments from a year's worth of podcasts. This week, the medievalist Hetta Howes reviews a new translation of Beowulf, taking us back to the rich and troubling ambiguities of the original, and the historian Ruth Skur delves into the secretive world of the ritual-loving Freemasons. But first, the TLS's classics editor, Mary Beard, digs through an old exam paper to emphasise the importance of teaching classics in context. Question one, dryads, hyads, naiads, oreads, playads. Does classical influence in modern poetry always come down to snobbery and elitism? Right now, in the professional study of classics, I'm not sure how far it's gone outside this, there's a huge uh, concentration on the uses to which classics has been put over the last 100, 200 years. Right? And it's... It, it tends to, not always, but it tends to be very, very gloomy story. Right? And some of that gloom is, is amply justified. You know, classics has underpinned racism. It has underpinned white supremacy. It has underpinned fascism. Um, and, and there's no doubt. I wanted to just to point out that that is one side of the story that we need to look at. But there are other sides of the story here. You know that that you know, classics has, in some ways, in nineteenth century, it it legitimated universal male suffrage. It gave a legitimation to male homosexuality. Looking back to fifth century Greece, and it certainly did do a lot for um, the the kind of bolstering of a, of a fascist aesthetic. But don't let's forget Freud, who comes out of you know, a really intense engagement with the classical tradition. And what everybody did, Karl Marx, do his PhD on Greek philosophy. So I wanted to say, look, hang on, everybody. There are things to celebrate and things to deplore. Is it in a sense that it, it was, when you're studying classics, you also have to think about how classics is thought about and taught. It's as though you're doing historiography while studying history as well. Yeah, I mean, I think so. And I think that should be the case with every subject. Just classics has got such a long history that it somehow is um, even harder to, to ignore. But you know, for me, uh, classics is not just the study of the ancient world. It's the study of what has happened to that study since the ancient world between then and now. You know, it's a very thick subject. And you know, I'd like to think that, that every subject you know, really needs to, to look at its, at its history. I mean, you know, people talk about classics being toxic. Um, well, yeah, I know why they say that. 
but you know, I hope nuclear physicists are thinking about the literal toxicity of nuclear physics. Um, and that's not to blame anybody now, but it's just to say we need to look at the history of our subject, whatever subject that is, in the eye. We need to look at who it's attracted, who it's who it's excluded, um, what to what uses it's being put, who learnt it, who didn't learn it, and and so on. And you know what. You can't ever get a balance sheet, you know, I, I think to say, mm, on balance, I think classics has been better than worse, right? But I think you can start to say there are all kinds of complex ways that classics has had an impact or been used in modern culture and modern politics. And one needs to be sure that one looks at the complexity, you know, not just at the either the bad or I think you know, when I was a student, you know, we didn't see the bad, we only saw the good. I think either of these is a wildly simplistic way of looking at a subject. So it was an attempt to say, let's think a bit more nuancedly. And to do this, you, um, when you, you come well prepared because you're able to take us back. I, I, I lament the absence of some kind of musical cue here from the Stone Roses or something, but take us back to the 90s, Mary. Yes, <laughs> yes because I, uh, when I was thinking about this, I remembered that, uh, that in the, the early 90s, then again, the end of the decade around the, the turn of the millennium, colleague and I actually did a, two very similar courses for uh, final year undergraduates in Cambridge about the history of classics. Um, partly because we were already seeing, you know, there was something that we need to, you know, encourage students to broach and look in the eye without, without simply taking sides. And so I, I went to my office. This was long before everything that you've ever taught is uh, on your laptop. You know, now if I wanted to find out what my courses had been 10 years ago, I'd just kind of... I, I would just search my machine. This was a bit before then. So I went and I found some old box files and I got the stuff out and I found you know, disjecta membra of these courses and some exam papers, which I think exam papers are always a good way of understanding what the course was teaching. And so I thought there was some quite good questions which people might like to have a go on themselves. They were uh, they were brilliant questions. Yeah, it's, it, it's a sort of I had a feeling this is a real confession and just about what a bad student I was that I used to get sometimes in exams. And I would look at the questions, and think, gosh, this is really interesting. And straight after that, I would think I wish I'd worked a bit more. <laughs> but that's Sorry, that's my problem, not yours. Yeah, what what was interesting for me is that I you know I was I was quite I wouldn't have put them on my blog if I'd been really embarrassed about them would I I'd have I'd have concealed them, but I thought it was quite interesting because it it did reveal slightly different preoccupations of what pretty well thirty years ago now I mean we did for example a bit about race in these courses but we did much more about class. We did much more about the exclusion of women and the exclusion of the British working class. I think if we were doing the courses now, we would think much more about um, race and diversity. Um, and we were very, very preoccupied, um, and I think rightly, but again, perhaps with more of an edge than it would be the case now, we were very preoccupied with elitism, you know, and whether, you know, classics in the end had bolstered not just elite cultural values, though in some ways that's clear, but whether it had also really been bolstered snobbery. Now, maybe actually with some members of the current Tory government, one might think it's that that question is getting, you know, its edge back again. Bit of a given. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I'm just looking at the questions now. And the first question was really about um, poetry, um, very TLSE kind of subject. And it just said dryads, hyads, naiads, oreads, pliads. Does classical influence in modern poetry always come down to snobbery and elitism? Now, I do want to say that I think that any student who answered that question in an hour and just said, yeah, of course it does. You know, all classical influences really is about snobbery would not have got a great mark. 
you know, and I think that you'd have wanted to get students, we did want to get students to think about how there's two sides of this, that, you know, to, just to write off classics as if it's, you know, a justification for being posh and showing that you know more than somebody else would actually end up ignoring some of the important intellectual uses and the, you know, the cultural power that, you know, classics still has. Now, again, you know, now I suppose, you know, 30 years later, looking at modern literature, we would say, hey, hang on a bit. I'm not sure I'm talking about poetry here, but, you know, looking at novels, I think that we'd be very keen to stress that um, modern writers or fiction, writers of fiction have used classical mythology in ways that entirely or very largely transcended our kind of the accusation of snobbery. So these questions are quite, you know, they, they challenge you, but if you think there's a simple answer to them, you'd be wrong. <laughs> Mm. Question 10, what goes when classics goes? That was my uh, That favorite. feels particularly sort of loaded and, and dramatic. Yes. And it was, you know, it was an attempt, again, to get, get students to, you know, to see what the subject represented. And, and uh, you know, insofar as I remember the answers to these, which is only very vaguely, I mean, there are people who were answering that by, by saying, look, classics is somehow a kind of building block of traditional conservative power in this country. And when it goes, even though I'm having a great time studying it myself, you know, in your course, when it goes, a lot of bad things go with it. And many of these questions, we're really trying to get people to see that easy answers to what the role of an intellectual discipline is are always wrong. You know, so we were looking we were looking for complexity, really, and people thinking through partly their own experience of what it's like doing classics, but partly also thinking about what the costs have been. You know, and there's, you know, there's absolutely no doubt that certainly in the 19th century and longer, the British elite used the study of Latin in particular, Greek, never quite so much, as a, a gatekeeper you know, as a social and uh, political sometimes gatekeeper to keep out people who didn't want. But even so, if you if you didn't have it, then how much really wonderful poetry and myth and literature would not be available to anyone? And that's uh, I would say that's the argument that you teach Latin and Greek to everyone. That, that's right. And I, mean, I think also as um, the book by Edith Hall and Henry Stead has recently shown about working class engagement with classics is that there are also other ways in which people get familiar with classics. You know, the professional educators, you know, tend to think that classics is what you do at school and it's, um, it's your irregular verbs and then you go to university and it's mm. very much an institutional thing. Whereas actually, and again, this underlays some of the things in these questions, people learn classics in all kinds of different ways. And, that, you know, I'm partly talking about, you know, autodidacts and um, trade union movements where, you know, the struggles of the Roman plebs was often a very important part of trade union history. But you learn classics through film. I mean, I think it's, it's very interesting when you go to, to talk at a general meeting and you might say to people, just, do you know anything about the classical world? And the answer will often be, oh, no, 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 I, I really don't I've come, I, I don't know a thing. But, you know, you press a little bit and, you know, going back a few years now, but uh, they know about gladiators. They've seen the movie Gladiator. They know what the Colosseum's for. There's quite a lot of, um, there's a lot of really good kids books as well. So I think a lot of kids now would say they've learned it, they've, uh, or imbibed it, not learned, that might be the wrong word, um, through um, books and cartoons and uh, graphic novels, all that, all that sort of stuff. There's some really creative, interesting stuff going on. In fact, there's a brilliant new video game called Hades, <laughs> which I've learned a bit from. Let me tell you, it's really good. <laughs> uh, I won't, I won't go on about it. that. Could be for another podcast, maybe. That is, you know, I think it's, you know, as soon as you start pressing at these questions, you see that. You know, there's an awful lot more to the history of classics than being the legitimator of fascist architecture, even though that was part of the story. 
Was this, um, well, I suppose this is two questions. A, was this a popular course? You know, did you find students kind of coming coming alive in, in, in on this module? And then also has has this way of teaching it sort of now been spread out across in most institutions obviously it will vary wildly from institution to institution but would you say that in general it has been spread out this concern across the teaching it's been absorbed rather than requiring its own module I'd like to be so optimistic but (laughs) but I mean just going back to the course at the time uh, it was one of the most exciting courses I'd ever taught you know, partly because back then people didn't really think about the history of the subjects they were doing. And I suppose in part that answers your second question here. But I mean, I remember we spent quite a lot of time having people talk about how they got into classics, you know, at school, you know, what kind of teachers they'd had. And some of those were idiosyncratic stories and everybody's story was slightly different. But it did reveal, you know, there were patterns to what, to, to how people got into it. And we have, I mean, one of the questions that we've got in this exam paper is, have ancient Greek and Latin rightly been presented and taught as difficult languages? Now, quite a lot of our students back then used to say, I got into it because my, my teachers said that I would really thrive on doing something difficult. <laughs> and so they recommended I did Latin because that would be intellectually challenging. So it, it, there was a kind of sense in which classics advertised itself as difficult. Now, there's nothing more or less difficult about Latin than there is about any language. It's just that there are some things that are very hard to read in it. But you know, um, but there is a mystique, you know. And there's, but part of the what happened in classics, I think, was a social and cultural mystique. But part of it was this kind of. It was what the really brainy kids did. So a lot of these people who then ended up in Cambridge doing classics, they'd they'd been they'd been kind of singled out to do it. So there was there was good chat about the different forms of elitism, both bad and good. It also sounds a bit off-putting, doesn't it? A bit eat your veg, come and do Latin because it's really difficult. Come and do Latin, it's really difficult, but actually kids can be quite (laughs) counter-suggestible. And and, I think that there was, there also was very small classes. I mean, I'm sure, look, if you've gone to some big old-fashioned public school, you'd have found the whole lot of them doing Latin, but in most schools that the kids had been to. It was a very kind of privileged thing to do because there was a very small class. There was there was three of you doing Latin A level, and so you had a completely different relationship with the teacher. And people remembered their classics teachers absolutely vividly. And I remember always used to used to to, to claim I'm not sure it's true that people remembered their class their Latin teacher so much more vividly than anybody ever remembered their geography teacher and, uh, and you know that wasn't because there weren't great geography teachers but because classics and the process of learning classics did have this very intimate kind of style to it but Theo you also asked about whether this now isn't necessary uh, and whether this has been incorporated. Oh, no, I mean, not, not sorry, just, just to clarify, not so much that I think it's necessary, unnecessary now, but just whether that, that self-reflexiveness has been, has been absorbed and built in more. Oh, sure, that's right. You, you don't need a special course. Like, like, you know, like you might say, I'm not sure this is right, that, you know, we used to have loads of courses about women in the ancient world, you know, somehow as if it was a special thing. They were there. Now, <laughs> yes, that's right. Now you expect any course that you teach in classics to include um, women as well as men. <laughs> you know, it's, um, so in a sense, it, the, the success of those old courses is, is revealed in that don't, you don't seem to need them quite so much anymore because, because they won. Um, uh, to some extent, I think that that's true about this course. And I think there's a lot more in almost every classics department now about the reception of classics you know, about you know, Derek Walcott and, and the Odyssey, um, performance, modern performances of Greek tragedy and so forth. I, I think that the idea of, of undergraduates as a kind of absolutely essential part of their course, you know, uh, thinking about the history of it, I think that we didn't win on that. Um, these were subjects that were done, these were courses that were done by people who opted to do them, they weren't for everybody. 
Now, I think what's quite interesting is that now our undergraduates who are very kind of concerned about the toxicity of the subject want this to be a kind of compulsory element, you know, and I find myself, you know, and this is where, you know, being 66 is, is both a blessing and a curse. I find myself saying, don't imagine that you invented this subject, you know, I was teaching this before you were born, sunshine. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, I predict, I think there's already plans in Cambridge that we, we will in the next couple of years be having a much more mainstream course about the history of classical scholarship and its impact and its effects. And, you know, in some ways this would be this, this course has kind of been resurrected in a slightly different form. Okay, um, well, Mary Beard then, if you just want, would like to choose one question from your list of 10, the one that is closest to your heart uh, to, to set as a challenge to our listeners. <laughs> uh, right, well, shall I, t- it's quite hard hard but um our listeners can handle that i'm confident okay uh, okay <laughs> let's have quick of course they're extremely self-selected um, <laughs> bunch of things. um has classics traditionally harbored and sanctioned deviance from and transgression against the norms of modern society because that was a question. Let me just give you a hint, oh listener, if you're thinking of doing that, that uh, there is a very sort of strong version that you often hear that classics is always legitimates the conservative, you know, Prince Charles, conservative architecture, classical architecture, right? Well, what about the ways that classics are sanctioned deviance? Can I have a... I'm thinking of D.H. Lawrence immediately. That might be, I think... I'm thinking about Catullus. All these would be very good starts to your essays. Can I do my essay on number 10, please? (laughs) (laughs) Can I just say that actually on Mary's blog, all 10 questions are there. So if people want to to look at all 10 questions, that's where they are. People are allowed to choose their own, though. Yes. Has... (laughs) chosen one for you answers on a postcard a really really long one so <laughs> really more, long more of a scroll really <laughs> <laughs> you have one hour only that's not mary, enough <laughs> mary bird thank you very much for joining us thank you very much everybody talking to us about why classics shouldn't remain in the past. Still to come, myths and rituals as we review a new translation by a woman of the old English poem Beowulf, and we pull back the curtain on the Freemasons. And if you like what you've heard so far, please do subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode. to do it well it's easy yeah. to be mean about something not well and yeah. actually that's one of the disappointing things about this piece that suddenly got so much airtime and you know there's even a question of whether we should be discussing it now because it's probably got enough mileage but i think it's it is important to discuss it because of the things it failed to do and this is it's a, it was a review by barry pierce in the irish times of Dolly Austin ghosts and without wishing to launch a hatchet job on a hatchet job it was rubbish. <laughs> it was really, it wasn't funny. It wasn't stylish. It told us nothing about the book itself. I mean, this is one of the things. It was, a, it was very much about the reviewer. I think the words I, me and my appeared in almost every sentence. I think those, these, those labels, I just, I, I, they all really annoy me. Actually, I find them fantastically unhelpful because they're, they're either used to punch up or punch down. And really, it just means that a lot of people enjoyed reading the book. Well, then Hilary Mantel is middle brown, so is Shakespeare, and so is Ulysses. A lot of people have enjoyed Ulysses. Actually, that you probably can't make that case. I need yeah. to rescind I mean, that you... point. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about one glaring omission, the man that you call the Voldemort of the book, 
Can you reveal who this is? It's, of course, Jose Mourinho. And the reason that it's a bit curious that Wenger doesn't mention him at all is that he had a great rivalry with him, from which he, he, he came off second best, one has to admit. And it seems that this kind of attitude that he had to Wenger, constantly teasing him and poking the bear, has left a, a lasting impression in that he just doesn't mention him at all. He does mention Alex Ferguson, with whom he had a lot of rivalry, but he calls it in the book a classic rivalry. We are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS and that's print and digital. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Later on, we'll be revealing the secrets behind the ancient brotherhood of the Freemasons. But first, to Beowulf, that most translated of all Old English poems, first committed to the page some thousand years ago. Very few women have taken on the work, however, and yet one has tackled it twice in quick succession. Maria Davana Headley first rewrote the work from a modern-day female perspective in her book The Mere Wife back in 2018, and now she's taking on the text itself. The medievalist Hetta Howes has read them both and joined us to discuss. Famously, the translator facing this text has to make a bold, defining decision from the very first word. So what is that first challenge? Yeah, so that's kind of, I imagine, what most translators will spend the most time on. And it's not a short poem. And that first word is quats, which is Old English for all kinds of different things. It's, you know, there's all kinds of ways you could translate that. It's a convention to start a lot of Old English poetry with that word. Um, and it essentially is a word that sort of says, OK, listen up. So different ways of translating it might be listen, low has been one use that I don't particularly like here, so um well any kind of sort of uh, dialectic marker that a story is about to begin it's time to sit up and listen so how a translator handles that word I think tells us quite a lot about what's coming exactly it completely sets the tone for everything else that follows so how does how does Headley kick things off then Headley's is my favorite ever um and hers is bro um, which is a really bold choice. And I think it tells us from the start of that translation that she's taking no prisoners with her translation and she's making fierce choices and it's going to work. 
bro is 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 sort of the the best way I can imagine to start such a macho poem. It's bro with an exclamation mark, isn't it? It's not like bro. Listen, it's like bro. <laughs> yes, this is what's going on. It makes it sound a bit like Point Break from the beginning. Absolutely, and it puts I think in our head exactly the kind of person that might speak to another bro like that, like bro at the pub. I have to say, when I was reading this translation, you know, bearing in mind pubs have been closed on and off for a long time now, I was like, oh, it really made me think of being in the pub. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's sort I mean this this choice bro it sort of flies in the face of of well of tradition but of Tolkien as well because didn't he sort of counsel specifically counsel against uh colloquialisms yes Tolkien's opinion was that you know um translations should, should almost be quite archaic because the diction of the original poem um is quite a high register so it's quite elevated and so Tolkien argued that, you know, translators should be sensitive to that, whereas Headley is doing almost the exact opposite. It brings it right into the sort of modern world. It's, it's sort of a word that might not mean anything in 10 or 20 years or might not have the same resonance. But I think that's why it works so well. You know, Beowulf is very much a poem of its moment and Headley's making it a poem of our moment as well. And it, it also acknowledges, um, as you as you touched on before, doesn't it, that, that this this has been, is... Uh, and has been a very male poem. Looking back over a list of, of previous English translations alone, there, there are very few women's names there. There's, um, I saw Mary Waterhouse in 1949, Megan Purvis in 2013, but it is this is a, a poem about men, for men, written by a man. Yes, and I think that's why it was sort of high time for a woman to translate it because actually whilst it is very much you know I'm not going to try and make the case today that, that it's really a woman's poem it's, it's not but there are more interesting sort of ideas about women in there than we've perhaps seen traditionally because of critical interest has often been historically from men translated translated by men historically or, or more popularly by men so and I think there's something about the culture of the poem. It's a warrior culture. Most of the characters are male. There's a lot of kind of exploration of what it means to be a good hero or a good king, both of which in the context of the time would have meant to be a man, what makes a good man. So I think it has, you know, I, I teach Beowulf and, and one of the challenges is sort of getting my largely sort of female student body to see that it's a poem that might have interest for them as well. Well, they've always got the opportunity to pour the drinks, which is what people, <laughs> the ladies seem to, <laughs> yeah. seem to do mostly in Beowulf as far as I can tell yes in fact um you know their, their role is very much to kind of keep the peace and serve the drinks yeah you know whale Theo is is one of the only women in it sort of wife of Hrothgar and she sort of is you know she needs to look pretty and make sure everyone's wine cup is full um and I actually a student in a presentation just last week said well it seems that that largely women are sort of about service in this poem and I was like yeah no absolutely and I think Headley manages in her translation to make those issues come to the surface so we can interrogate them rather than just sort of presenting them as, as oh this is what women are she kind of is quite tongue-in-cheek about it and quite playful about that kind of role assigned to women in the poem um, and this picks up on Headley's previous work doesn't it the um the mere wife from from 2018 that was a modern day uh, retelling rather than than translation of Beowulf and it was it was from the perspective of Grendel's mother yes and if anyone listening has not read it please read it immediately and then read Headley's translation The Mere Wife is an astonishing book um, and as you say it's a feminist adaptation retelling um, and and it's sort of key themes are sort of motherhood and sort of um, what it means to be a woman but also toxic masculinity and some fairly big themes as well colonization gentrification politics you know it covers quite a lot of ground but I read The Mere Wife a couple of years ago and I was so excited by it um, and sort of the way it engaged with the poem in a way I hadn't really seen before and so when I heard that Headley was also translating Beowulf I was like okay this is going to be good and I was quite nervous to read it in case it wasn't and it was so good <laughs> it was so good and one of the things that she circles back to again and again then uh, in both books it seems is 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 the double standard really and this is something that I think has been touched on before in in terms of Beowulf. It's sort of been wrangled with and smoothed out over time. But basically, how if if a man chops off a rival's head, he's a he's a warrior hero. Whereas if a woman does it, she's a monster, a dragon. Yeah, there's a wonderful kind of parallel parallelism in the poem, which is kind of under the surface, but I think is is very much present in the original. A kind of ambivalence about how we treat outsiders. So you've got 
you know, those within Hrothgar's hall, the sort of main warriors who are celebrated for wreaking havoc, causing a lot of death, you know, brawling, fighting, wars. And then when it's outsiders, whether that's Grendel, the sort of male monster, or more interestingly for me as mother, um, that's perceived in a completely different way. So as you say, there's sort of a moment where Grendel's mum puts the head of a warrior outside her mirror because her son's been killed and she's avenging him, which is exactly what, according to the culture, she should do. But in the poem, there's a sense of, oh, you know, how could she do this terrible thing? What a monstrous person. So I think the poem is inviting us quite subtly to sort of think about those inconsistencies, how we perceive other people, who's inside, who's outside. And that's something that Headley certainly seems engaged with in her translation, bringing those sort of double standards to the surface, whether that's double standards of gender or just double standards of who happens to be in the club and who doesn't happen to be in the club. Can I ask in, in terms of that ambiguity, and I'm not sure if I've understood this right, is it right that there is that, that same one word that can be glossed as a, it's, or sometimes used as warrior when it's talking about Beowulf, but then monster when it's talking about Grendel or the dragon, and it's the same word, is that right? Yes, and this is something that kind of got more attention, started to be paid to it from the 80s onwards with the sort of rise of second wave feminism, actually, and more critics started paying attention to the language and how particularly Grendel's mum was translated. But there's this, this word, Aglecha, which in Old English can mean um, sort of warrior or hero, but could also mean monster or wretch. And interestingly, in some editions, famously Friedrich Kleber's edition, which is still very influential today, whenever the word Aglecha is used, if it's used in reference to Beowulf or another male hero, he glosses that word as warrior. But when it's used for Grendel or Grendel's mum, it's glossed as monster or wretch. And there's nothing about that word that would sort of invite us to categorise that much in the original. It can mean both. And context, of course, is important. But I think additions which don't nod to that ambiguity are losing something from the original poem and certainly translations as well that, that don't nod to that ambiguity because part of the sort of wonder of the poem is you, know, you don't ever quite know where you stand and, and yes Beowulf is portrayed as a great hero but he's also a bit superhuman and you know it's sort of interested in the lines between humanity and monstrosity so the treatment of that word has historically been quite revealing about sort of our attitudes to the poem, particularly with this tradition of sort of male editors and translators, I think. Hetta Howe's talking to us about Maria Devani Headley's translation of Beowulf. And finally, we turn to the Freemasons. This famous fraternal organization traces their origins to the 13th century stonemasons, but today their practices are the stuff of legend. Supposed former members include Mozart and even the first president of the United States, George Washington. The historian Ruth Skur joined us to try to shed light on who the real Freemasons are. Notoriously, Freemasonry and its history is complex. Um, a very basic definition from the Encyclopedia Britannica is the largest worldwide secret society. But in his book, John Dickey points out that many Freemasons today contest the idea that they belong to a secret society. Instead, they see themselves as belonging to a society or club that has secrets. So a more accurate definition would be the largest fraternal and charitable institution in the United Kingdom or perhaps even the world. The origins of Freemasonry can be traced to Scotland in the 16th century to a man named William Shaw, who is thought to be the first man in Scotland to be referred to as an architect. Um, the term Freemason originally referred to a mason who worked in free stone, so fine-grained sandstone or limestone. And Dickey explains that the name became associated with the accepted masons during the turmoil of the English Civil War, and simultaneously with a set of secrets which, quotes, must never be written. These include passwords, signs and handshakes. Much later, under the British Empire, Freemasonry was widely exported around the world. And then it grew into, uh, into the society. I have to say, in that, in that definition, the thing that surprises me is it's a one of the largest charitable foundations. Yes, um, being an upright person in the community and doing charitable works 
is a very important part of the, of the understanding of, of, of being a Freemason. At what point then did something that sounds quite dry and serious, you know, a body to regulate the craft of masonry and its, mm. and its dealings with the authorities and so on, at what point did that start to become bound up with conspiracy theories and the secret handshakes you alluded to, all that sort of thing? I mean, is the darker side much more recent? Was there a kind of triggering event or how did it come about? So the conspiracy theories had a huge impetus during the French Revolution. And so before the the revolution, Freemasonry had been very um, important in in France. And during the revolution, there was a big clampdown on it. And the Roman Catholic historians of the revolution started to, to suggest that the revolution had been prepared by the Freemasons. So then the sense that there was some kind of conspiracy or or secrecy that was anti-Roman Catholic in the French context became very prominent. And I had a strange sort of personal um, experience of that because when I published my book on Robespierre, I sent it to um, the Roman Catholic priest I'd known in my childhood And he wrote back to me saying that he thought it was obvious Robespierre was a Freemason, a terrible person. He hated my book and he was going to put it in the church jumble sale. (laughs) Did you put that on the back of the cover as one of the blurbs? (laughs) Obviously, I was really upset at the time. But I've come to realise that that he was just part of that old um, hostility between Freemasons and the Catholic Church in France in particular. Certainly things like the scandal in in Italy in the 70s and 80s, which, you know, roped in bankers and politicians and industrialists. And I mean, that must have tarnished the Freemasons image. Yeah. So, so so much. When I was um, looking online, I I wish I'd gone to it at the time, I saw this review of of, um, an interesting exhibition at the the Grand Masonic Lodge in in London, and they had put on an exhibition about the impact of the revolution on Freemasonry, because at the time, when the revolution happened in France, Freemasonry in Britain was at its highest point, and they had just completed that grand building in, in, in the middle of London, etc. And then obviously the uh, conspiracy theories and the suspicion of the Masons sort of started to come across the, the channel and took them, you know, in, in a sense by, by surprise, I think, because they had become very recognised and um, very, very sort of um, respectable in, in Britain. Yes, I was going to say I thought they were they were very respectable. And you say, um, I'm sorry, I'm sort of slightly jumping ahead to, to something else you say later on in the piece, that you say that it could be revolutionary and reactionary. Um, but was it, because there's sort of two sides, aren't there? There's the, did it reinforce the class differences? Or say in the revolution, was it a way for people to come together and actually erode class differences and sort of do good works? Yeah, well, I think um, I really agree with the main point of Dickie's book, which is that you always have to look really carefully at the social context to understand how Freemasonry is operating. I mean, that's his his main thing is, you know, instead of getting hung up on trying to penetrate and understand the sort of the secrets, that's not so important. What's more important is to see how Freemasonry functions in different times and and different places. So with the revolutionary and um, reactionary contrast, I think it's actually more about the relationship between Freemasonry and the state than about the relationship between classes within the state. So certain states at different times have been incredibly hostile to Freemasons and others have regarded Freemasons as useful for furthering the state's purposes. And whilst the French Revolution more or less put an end to to Freemasonry in in France, afterwards it underwent a huge revival um, under Napoleon. That's interesting in itself, though, because, I mean, Dickie, um, you, you point out how he assembles a, a large cast of characters and, and some of them are, are well known, uh, you know, Benjamin Franklin, Rudyard Kipling, they were Masons. Um, but I mean, do we get a sense of the role that the organisation did play in their lives? Because, you know, what they what they got from it, so to speak, because we know that you're not allowed to or we believe <laughs> that you're not allowed to talk 
politics. You're not allowed to talk about religion mm, that's right. as a Mason, are you? So, I mean, in that sense, I suppose it's difficult because they probably don't write down uh, or leave memoirs about what they gained from being members. So it would probably not be very common to do that. I was reading, um, I mean, I know we, we might come to this later, the, the idea of women who are in Britain excluded from being Masons, but that wasn't true on the continent. And um, Napoleon's wife, Josephine, was a Mason before she met him and continued to be involved in that. I was reading about um, research being done in her letters. Sometimes she signs them with the parallel lines and, and that are considered to be signs of Masonic membership. So I guess there might be um, in people's archives and, and letters uh, signs that you wouldn't necessarily be um, noticing unless you were looking for it. The sort of the written equivalent of the secret handshake type thing. Exactly. Um, so g- g- let's let's talk about women. I mean, before I read your your piece, I didn't know that women were allowed in any form at all. So what? So was Josephine like a full member of a, of a lodge? So it's it's complicated, yes. Um, so on the continent, um, there were lodges for women and, and they have um, a sort of special status. And she, she certainly was. And then obviously under Napoleon's regime, when Freemasonry becomes protected and, and starts to flourish, his brothers are, are Freemasons. Josephine's son is a Freemason. And she certainly, there are accounts of her um, being initiated into a lodge in Strasbourg in, in 1805. And um, I'm not sure where it is, but you allegedly we, we have her um, apron, her Masonic apron, which is the first gift that you receive when you enter a lodge. And that is a symbol that goes right back to the, the guilds and the trades and the sort of the, the working aprons that, that tradesmen would have worn to protect themselves. Well, when you think of, um, because there is a personal connection for Dickie, you know, he doesn't say that he, he is a Mason. We don't think he is a Mason, but his, his grandfather, uh, he mentions, was a Scottish rail, uh, railwayman. Yes. He became a Freemason in, a Freemason in Aberdeen in, in 1919. And you say, like many thousands of soldiers returning from the Great War, you know, a substitute sense of camaraderie. Exactly. Um, or, you know, also satisfying that desire maybe for pomp if they were in the, you know, the upper echelons of the army, say. It's interesting in the um, Dickie book, because although he does talk about the way in which, in some instances, women were able to be in these in these lodges that were um, accepted, and there's all kinds of complicated rules around that. Essentially, he does present Freemasonry as a brethren, as a brotherhood, as a sort of very male, eccentric, almost like a cult, really. When And the whole point of it is this sort of male friendship at the heart of it. So that's a very important uh, argument in the book. Um, and I think you say that his line on the secrecy says the point of the secrecy is secrecy itself, i.e. to make it mysterious, but n- not that any of the terrible things will actually happen if you break the rules. Yes. So he quotes, I mean, he's he's got a sort of humorous tone, uh, Dickie, and, and that's not because he's being dismissive. I mean, I think that's because he is looking at this from the outside. So he's trying to explain, well, all these, you know, you'll be cut in half, you'll be burned if you break the secrets of the fraternity, etc. Um, what he argues is that you know the point of all this secrecy is as you say the secrecy itself and I think what he's doing there is saying look you know Freemasons aren't really hiding anything it's a sort of counter argument to the conspiracy theories and in the past that that the fact that there were secrets associated with um, the Freemasons has caused a, a lot of trouble and suspicion and even persecution in some cases. So I think he's picking up really on that distinction that I mentioned earlier between a secret society and a society that has secrets. And he's very much on the side of the Freemasons. And he's saying, all right, you know, they've got some supposedly secret rituals, but actually it's not that difficult to find out, you know, what some of them are. And he gives a short account of the initiation ceremonies, etc. He does describe it as as a cult of death though. What does that actually mean? 
he doesn't actually describe it as um, a cult of death. What he says is it's about death and ultimately about overcoming your fear of death. And for that reason, it uses symbols of death or he calls them emblems of mortality, like skulls and bones and tombs and urns. And it incorporates all those things into its rituals. But it's not um, a deathly or I mean, from some people have suspected a sort of satanic kind of um, cult at at all. It's an attempt to actually overcome the fear of death um, through these rituals which incorporates those um, signifiers of death in in into the practices to go back to napoleon you say that um you know josephine was um i mean i'm talking about napoleon because i know that you've got a book coming out on napoleon (laughs) so so we'll just uh, have a little a bit of pre-publicity there um his, so his so most of his family were and Josephine was do we know whether he was so this is a subject of huge interest and debate as you can imagine and um you know some people think he was but there's there's no evidence that he was and in fact uh when he was in exile on Saint Helena he made some pretty disparaging remarks um comparing freemasonry to a pile of imbeciles who assemble for good cheer and the execution of many ridiculous follies. So there's a sense that he was uh, not up for wearing the apron and you know participating in the series. However, he was hugely tolerant of Freemasonry in in. Um, 1798, when Napoleon leads the the army into into Egypt, there were definitely Freemasons um, who accompanied him, and they become very struck by the imagery in Egypt, um, the the, the pyramids and and the the symbols, etc. And they bring that back to France, and it enters into um, this new revival of Freemasonry that, that is happening there. for listening to this edition of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell looking back at the past year on this show we'll be back in September with a return to regular programming but in the meantime issues of the TLS continue to appear every week and our summer double issue towards the end of this month looks set to be quite something so why not look into a print and digital subscription you'll find a special subscription offer just for podcast listeners in this episode's description but for now from Thea Lenarduzzi and from me goodbye and see you in September Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.